This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I knew that I wanted to make change and I knew I would have to learn how to do public speaking, but I was so terrified. In seventh grade, when I did my first speech by Judy Garland, who was my you know, favorite movie star at the time, I fainted. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello there. We have a real treat in store for you today with a truly remarkable change maker and New York Times bestselling author as our guest. Indeed we do, so buckle up. Acumen founder and CEO Jacqueline Novogratz has been named one of the 25 smartest people of the decade by the Daily Beast and one of the world's 100 greatest living business minds by Forbes, no less, amongst numerous other honours. Wow, that's pretty impressive. It certainly is. And you know what, Gret? Despite her terror of public speaking as a youngster, I don't think we've had a better storyteller on the podcast, do you? No, I think you're right. I think you're very right. Now, Jacqueline's pioneered the notion of patient capital, investing in social entrepreneurs around the world and helping them over time to establish sustainable businesses that serve some of the world's poorest people. And what makes this episode a particularly fascinating one is that all this work with entrepreneurs has taught Jacqueline and her team so much about what it takes to succeed. And she's just released a new book revealing what it takes to create change. It's called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. And we'll be learning more about that today. Now, in this episode, you'll hear how Jacqueline's early attempts at social change in Africa failed seriously to impress the locals. What she learned about humanity when she became one of the first people to visit in jail someone she'd known well who'd gone on to become a major perpetrator in the Rwandan genocide. I can't imagine what that would be like. Me neither. How Jacqueline sees investment as a means to solving problems rather than making profit as the primary investment goal and how she's seeing women entrepreneurs successfully breaking the rules, particularly now during the coronavirus crisis. So without further delay, enjoy this episode with the incredibly inspiring Jacqueline Novogratz. Jacqueline Novogratz, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. 
Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you on the show. And where are you speaking to us from? Um, from my apartment in New York City. Wow. So what has it been like in New York in the past few weeks with coronavirus? Have you been completely sort of staying indoors the whole time? Well, definitely most of the time we are at the epicenter. I mean, until last week, we we're seeing seven or 800 deaths a day. And so very much aware of the grief and loss around. And I'm hearing ambulances constantly. But I'm a runner, and I don't think I would be sane if I didn't get up early every morning and take a long run around the city when nobody was out. Yeah, it must have been quite an extraordinary few weeks, and we hope everyone at your organization, Acumen, and, and your and family who are in New York or wherever are, are all doing safe and well currently. Thank you. No, you know, we have such a big community that it's impossible not to be touched by the loss. And at the same time, I think to be reminded of how lucky we are too. It's like so many crises of living with the juxtapositions feels like metaphor for the whole macro moment that we're in. Yeah. And that macro moment and the book that you, you know, are releasing this month, it's extraordinary. And we'll come to that in a moment. But a question we like to ask all of our guests when we kick off is, if you were to meet someone you didn't know, how would you briefly describe to them what you do today? So I would say I am the founder and CEO of Acumen, which is essentially an organization that invests patient capital or long-term investment in entrepreneurs that are solving some of the biggest problems of the world, in healthcare and energy and agriculture and education. We accompany these entrepreneurs that are going in places where both markets and governments have failed the poor. And sometimes they actually change entire systems. Incredible. I mean, if I was at a dinner party and you said that, I know I'd be digging straight in. (laughs) (laughs) And we will definitely be digging straight in. But before we do, we always really love to just get a little glimpse of our guests, you know, in terms of where they've grown up and What have been those experiences that have led to the amazing things that they do? So if I take you all the way back to your childhood, what was it like? I think you were one of seven children and the eldest at that. What was it like? Yeah, eldest of seven and a big Catholic immigrant military family. So again, this theme of juxtaposition. We were raucous, rowdy, cowboy kind of scrappy kids. And yet I was surrounded by loving adults who kind of guided us with the, with a lot of mantras from the Catholic side to whom much is given, much is expected from the military side, a sense of duty to things bigger than yourself from the immigrant side, hard work equals success. And probably from all the sides, how important it was to show up. And I think that those, if you talk to any of my siblings, or frankly, even the next generation, you would hear those themes running through our lives even today. So what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a child, <laughs> when you were, when you were a child obviously, not now, but when you were a child. Okay, we ha- I have to set the context because otherwise it could be taken finally. But, you know, <laughs> I was a six-year-old. My dad was in Vietnam, went to Catholic school and really had a crush on my 80 year old nun. I just thought she was the most amazing person. And when you did well on an exam, she would give us cards of the saints 
And so I would always read these little cards of these extraordinary women who were fighting for social justice and would sometimes die. It wasn't until recently, because I think I wanted to skip nunhood altogether and become a saint, which seemed to me the only option. But I was recently talking to a friend of mine, a poet, Marie Howen, and we were laughing about our first role models being saints. And she said, you know, Jacqueline, those saints were the first women who actually wrote the narratives of their own lives. And when I really thought about it, I thought they're also the first people in my life who were willing to live for an idea that's bigger than they are, and if necessary, to die for that idea. And so I feel, I feel really lucky to have had those incredible stories now that I look back on it. Wow, I love that. And whereabouts did you grow up? Which part of the U.S.? All over. Dad in the military in Vietnam or Korea for three different years. He'd be gone for a year, then we'd move to a new place near an army base. So I was in New York, California, Kansas, Michigan, Virginia, Philadelphia, North Carolina. It was like that, but all in the United States. I'd never been outside the country. How did that moving around impact you? Because um, my brother-in-law's in in the military, actually. And so my nieces and nephews, are I think they've lived in seven different places in seven years. How did that impact you? You know, again, I think because of who my parents were, they were so good at creating tribe and a sense of the now. And so within a week of moving to a new place, my mother would somehow create home. And I think that's very much who I am now that I, I live in the present. And I guess the second thing that if I think about what it meant to move every year was to almost hold the buoyancy, being excited and learning how to be flexible and meet new friends but knowing almost even as I met them that I was going to pretty soon have to say goodbye to them. And so holding these tensions, I think is a theme that I've grown quite comfortable with in my life. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I see my nieces and nephews doing that themselves. Interesting, yeah. So if we fast forward, you went off to uni and then went to work in banking on Wall Street. And yet just a few years after that, you threw in that amazing sort of prestigious job to go and work in Africa. Can you talk us through what triggered that big decision? Yeah. Like I said, ever since I was six, I pretty much wanted to change the world. And in a way, I was an accidental banker. This particular job offered me the chance to go to 40 countries in three years. And for a kid who always wanted to see the world, this was an incredible opportunity. Plus, I got some amazing skills and and I learned that I loved the tools of banking. I loved the power of numbers to tell a story. I loved the power of investing to release and create jobs. I didn't love that the poor were excluded from the bank. Just recently, I found all these journals from that time and I would, you know, go up into the favelas in Brazil or talk to the street kids or try to get them into my hotel to give them baths. And I had this deep sense of empathy, but more than that, I would say the rational, pragmatic part of my brain was also asking questions around why people who had so much initiative, so much innovation inherent in the way that they were just surviving had no place in the banks, at least in terms of the way the banking system was structured back in the 1980s. I made the decision that I was going to leave. And around that time, I chanced upon this fledgling new sector called microfinance that was spearheaded by a few great 
pioneers, one of whom was Muhammad Yunus, who started the Grameen Bank and a few years ago got the Nobel Peace Prize for it. That really captured my imagination. And I guess I was reckless enough at age 25 to think I could go to Africa and save the world and start a bank. And so I did. And I fell flat on my face the minute I got there, pretty much wholly rejected by the African women who rightly uh, didn't want to be saved, certainly not by a kid whose understanding of their world, their continent was so meager. I guess going back to childhood had that fierce sense of resilience. Could not imagine myself failing so much that I had to crawl home to the bank, even though it was clear that I was failing over and over. And then one day a woman walked into the office and it was the first time that she asked me, would you go to Rwanda? Would you help us build a financial institution for women? They'd just gotten the ability to open a bank account without their husband's signature and you know, had my name written all over it. (laughs) It was impossible to say no to. So I ended up in Rwanda and started the country's first microfinance bank with a small group of Rwandan women. And I'm really happy to say that in my years with Product Red, I used to uh, visit Kigali. And in my very first visit to Kigali, I visited Deuterimbere, which is the name of the microfinance bank. I love that. Yeah, totally. And I have to go back. So you were talking about when you were working with the bank and you would talk to street kids in Brazil and try and smuggle them into your hotel to give them baths? (laughs) It didn't even seem like it was a funny thing for me. I saw these adorable kids. And I'd sort of forgotten about it till, as I said, it was one of my best friends. She had just had a big birthday. And so I was looking for something else in this journal. And I chanced upon this long entry about taking these little kids who I fell in love with, but they were filthy. And I thought, (laughs) well, someone's got to give these children a bath and get them some clean clothes. And so I got them some clean clothes and I took them to my hotel room. I got them all bathed. I took them down to the fancy restaurant by the pool because this was, of course, the old days of banking where we were certainly treated in style. So we were at you know, a five-star hotel and the major D came up to me and was like, Madam, I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to bring these guests into the hotel. And I was like, but they're my guests. And you know, they were seven years old, eight years old. And he called me over from the table and said that they were street children. They were a nuisance. Either they left now or I would be asked to leave the hotel. And I think had I not been with the rest of my team, I would have left the hotel. I tried to create this big ruckus, but I started to understand, I think, at a visceral level, what it means to make people less than, to make them other, even children, almost to reduce children to a separate category that is less than that less than fully human, at least in the way that the rest of us who got to sit by the pool were seen as fully human. And it had a huge impact on those early days, those early stories. And of course, I did it more frequently, not less frequently after that, but I would get caught on a regular basis. That is classic. And so there you are, you know, you've gone to Rwanda and Deuterimbere, certainly back a few years ago, was still going strong, the microfinance institution that you helped found. But you found yourself and your way back to America at some point and worked in both California, I think, and then with the Rockefeller Foundation. What then led you to start your own organization, Acumen? I guess that banking had taught me 
that the market is probably the most effective listening device that we have, plays an important role in allocating resources and creating efficiencies, but too often it overlooks or exploits the poor. And that Rwanda and development had taught me that top-down approaches to aid and development too often create dependency, and that there had to be something better, something that took the best of, of all of these different approaches. In 1994, which was seven years after I had helped found the microfinance organization, the genocide exploded across Rwanda and you know, killed many of the people I knew. And I also saw some of my friends emerge as perpetrators. And so I think I suddenly started to understand that all these different systems and all these different approaches were only good as, the, as good as the leaders that ran them. And that if we focused on dignity rather than just giving alms to the poor or creating market systems where everybody was on their own, and we thought about the different types of capital that we had at our command, maybe we could do a better job at solving these problems. And so in 2001, Acumen was born with this idea that we could help human dignity flourish if we dared to see investment as a means to solving problems rather than as the end in and of itself. In other words, rather than just going after profit, what if we went after solving problems and then make the investment work as a secondary approach. And how challenging, though, was the reality of the genocide and seeing some of those friends that you had who ended up being perpetrators as well as other friends being victims? How challenging was that to your view about the importance of dignity above all? Because presumably these people had had some degree of dignity before, I mean, it, it shredded my insides. It turned my understanding of what it means to be human inside out. I think there were two extraordinary moments for me. I mean, there were many, but two that really stand out. One, our first executive director ended up being a major perpetrator, a major planner of the genocide. And I was the, one of the first people in the country that was able to visit her in solitary confinement because she was a one of the first three parliamentarians, the highest ranking official to be charged with capital crimes of genocide. And so to be sitting in her solitary cell, knee to knee, and trying to understand what makes good people do horrible things, I came to this realization that you know, I'd grown up at a time where I was taught there were sinners and there were saints. There were good people and bad people. And I kind of fancied myself one of the good people. And now here I was trying to navigate a group of people that had built an institution of social justice. And yet in front of me was a woman who, who made manifest the angels and the monsters that live inside of all of us. And I think I started to understand that it, we had it all wrong and that those monsters are not these standalone creatures, but they are the broken parts of ourselves that shames and the petty grievances and the insecurities and in times of fear and insecurity, and I would say this is one of them, it gets really easy to prey upon those broken parts. And that's when demagogues can make us do and say really terrible things. And so it wasn't just the genocide that had an impact on me, but it was having built an institution of social justice that got 
I thought destroyed by it with, you know, dozens of friends who were lost and coming back and seeing the best and the worst of humanity, sometimes in the same person that made me realize how precious and fragile our systems are. And that's why we have to build character. That's why we have to build a moral framework, not these easy frameworks of money, power, and fame, but a hard framework that puts our humanity at the center. And that, I think, started the work that I do at a different level and have only continued to deepen for the last 20 years. And it's a theme that crops up a lot in your book that you are releasing this month, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. I mean, just the title alone seems so timely. Could you have imagined the book when you were writing it coming out at a moment like this? (laughs) It's so interesting that you say that, you know, for better and for worse, because right now media is just COVID, COVID, COVID. And so it's a crazy time for a book launch in a technical way for a poor publisher. But for the conversation, yeah. And in fact, when we were naming the book, I really wanted to name it Manifesto for Moral Revolution. And one of the people at the publishing company said, well, you know, manifesto sounds like what too many terrorists are talking about. And the revolution sounds like Bernie Sanders' revolution and moral sounds like the Christian right. And I was like, that's perfect. <laughs> together because This revolution is a moral revolution that needs all of us. And it's not from the top down. It's from inside all of us. And so know that, that now we've gone in like three months from almost being frightened of those words to recognizing that it is time for us to create a new framework for how we're going to live on this earth together. Yeah, incredible, incredible timing. It's like there's a a tidal wave that you're going to hopefully surf. But to help our listeners very briefly, what's the elevator pitch in terms of what the book's about? In many ways, it's a love letter to the next generation. I started writing the book as a set of principles, hopefully operating principles, for creating change in the world, recognizing it's hard in a way that redefines success and puts humanity and the earth at the center of our systems rather than money, power, and fame. And so, you know, in your wildest dreams, what do you hope comes out of this book? You know, I really do believe not only that we need a moral revolution, but it is within all of us and that we are all yearning for it as well. And so I hope readers just start where they are And they start to ask themselves, what would it take for me to take a step toward a world where other people have more dignity? And the cool thing is, we're already seeing it. I think that the coronavirus crisis is opening a whole set of human energies that are putting into practice a lot of the principles of this book. One of our companies in America called Every Table, run by a guy named Sam Polk. He had this idea that he was going to start essentially healthy, affordable, fast food that he would bring into food deserts like South Los Angeles. And he'd grown the business to have eight restaurants, hired a whole bunch of people from the neighborhoods, producing beautiful food. And then, of course, there's a a stay-at-home order, and he thinks that the restaurant is going to go under. The first thing he does 
here goes the moral revolution, is instead of hunkering down and firing people, he sends a message out on social media and says, anyone who needs a meal, let us know. Because our mission is to bring healthy food to everyone. And if you can pay, pay. If you can pay it forward so somebody else can eat, give us a donation. And if you need food, let us know. That just unleashed all of these citizens across Los Angeles to contribute about 170,000 meals. But then the governor of the state comes forward and says, we're going to put homeless people in hotels to give them real shelter, safe shelter, and they need someone to feed them. So now they have a partnership with Every Table. And suddenly, what I've only dreamed, I'm now watching happen over the course of a few months, where you've got a a social entrepreneur who started a company not to make money, but to make change, partnering with government, who's working by putting the poor and the vulnerable first, and then figuring out the kind of capital, the kind of systems, the kind of talent that's needed to make everybody part of our society. If we can hold that spirit and unleash that across the world, we can can change the whole game. That is so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you said before that there is a real appetite for this. If you were to think about the world leaders that are on the stage today, who do you see is coming closest to this approach? Well, you know, I think in your part of the world, Jacinda Ardern is not just now, but during the horrendous shootings at the mosques, when so many leaders immediately feel the need to stand up with a show of strength and, again, certainty, anger, she showed up with deep humility, sadness, compassion. But that didn't mean she didn't, couldn't also hold the super masculine parts of herself, the toughness that you will not put that man's name in the paper. You will not elevate it. We will take those guns back changed laws, moved. So she was this mix of compassion and ferocious action. She was this mix of, you know, showing up respectfully, opening her arms, but also with toughness, holding the head and the heart. And so as we see what's happening right now with the coronavirus, we need leaders who have the courage to be strong enough not to compete, but to collaborate, not to divide, but to open, to share, and certainly not to divide, but to recognize that if ever there were time in history to put the poor and the vulnerable first, this is it. Because what we are learning now collectively as a world is that what happens to the least of us happens to all of us. And it's only if we solve the problem for the most vulnerable that all of us get this problem solved. Yes, so true. I have to say, you know, even though Jacinda Ardern is obviously the Prime Minister of New Zealand, we've decided in Australia to adopt her. (laughs) I was going to ask if you did, actually. um, She's close enough, you know, and she's close enough. I've adopted her too. We're definitely all moving to New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, she's not the only one. There are incredible leaders, and they're not all female, although women are really stepping out. If you look at the all the people that are stepping up, a large majority of them are women. Oh, yeah. In our portfolio, because we're right now, we're raising 
over $100 million in emergency facilities for our companies and for the energy sector, because we're now the largest off-grid energy sector investor. I look at who is really like radically stepping up right now, and they're all our women entrepreneurs. It's thrilling to see the kinds of companies that they've been building, but now they're pivoting in ways that I think are going to have huge impact for the way health and education are delivered in the developing world. It's just out of interest. What do you think is the reason that the women are stepping up? I don't know fully the answer, but I maybe because the rules haven't fully worked for us. We're more willing to just break rules right now. And also I'm watching women entrepreneurs respond to the needs right in front of them, but not in a heart only way not only in an alms way, but also they're looking, even as they are dealing with the mess in front of them, they're reimagining the future. So two quick examples, one in Pakistan, one in India. In Pakistan, a woman named Sara Saeed Kuram had built a health tech company, which is essentially telemedicine for rural women. But it had 26 health clinics, private health clinics attached to it because low-income people anywhere in the world don't really trust telemedicine. They want to see a doctor and they want medicine if they're going to pay. And they certainly don't want to pay for an online consultation. But with the shutdown order in Pakistan, private health clinics were also shut, deemed inessential because the government didn't want people gathering. And so Sara instinctively, day one, decided to give their services on her website on the telemedicine platform for free. And Before you knew it, all these women doctors from across the country were volunteering to give free consultations on this platform. And within 10 days, she had gone from 50 consultations a day to 1,000. Wow. Then she started to work with the local government to allow foreign doctors in the Pakistani diaspora, all women doctors, to come and let their certification prevail inside Pakistan during this emergency. And so... When I talk to Sarah and I think about the future of healthcare in Pakistan, you now have a generation that's being trained to interact with doctors online in a way that's so much more cost efficient. And you can imagine a doctor in Australia consulting with a poor rural woman from the, the northern Himalayas of Pakistan on the Afghan border and giving her the kind of healthcare she never would have had yeah. in a generation. And in India, A woman named Suhani Mohan already was just a complete rock star in that when she was part of the fellowship, she was thinking about the issue of menstruation and how Indian women have had just a horrendous track record, one of the worst track records, particularly women in the rural areas from very conservative communities. And so she broke every rule of capitalism in that she understood that the traditional way of building a fast-moving consumer goods company that would have a big central brand and a factory that created sanitary napkins and then shipped things off into these far-flung villages in mountain areas, when you have terrorism plus climate change, wasn't going to work and no trust. So she allowed villagers to build their own factory to brand the sanitary napkins with their own brand And turn the model upside down. And now she has 40 factories up and running. Then she has another crisis with COVID because you have a shelter rule. 
And so the women can't go door to door. You can't get the menstrual health products out into the rural areas. So she immediately pivots because she knows that she's got to keep these women employed. She's got to keep the company alive and gets in touch with a big auto manufacturer, Mahindra, who agrees to retool her factory so that she's now employing all these women to make masks for the coronavirus. And again, I'm watching this happening within a matter of, of days and weeks, responding to the problem in front of them, but with this moral imagination that does not let go of the audacity to see what it will take to create new systems that include us all. Yeah. I love the creativity that's coming out of this crisis. It's just incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. And I think that it's something we can't forget that it is in crisis that we have the possibility for transformation and redemption. I know many of our listeners, they really want to make a difference in the world, but you know, they, maybe they feel either overwhelmed or they don't feel expert enough or even courageous enough. What would your advice be to them? Hmm. Well, one, I would say, you know, I completely relate. I was raised to be a good girl. My whole generation was to be polite, to be kind, to not make waves. And yet, if you're not willing to get uncomfortable and disrupt yourself, there's no way you're going to make change. And so I would say, number one, just start. We think that we need experts, but frankly, the experts have done a lot of damage out there in the world because they think they know everything. And it's often the outsider that sees things that the overly qualified and sometimes self-satisfied expert doesn't see. And so approaching things with competence, certainly, and with skills but not every skill because there's no possible way that you will have the skills to solve problems that have never been solved. It's tautological. So just start and let the the work teach you. And then you mentioned the word courage. I don't think many of us were born with courage. Every now and then you see this aberration, but I certainly didn't have it. And I have learned that the only way we get courage is to practice courage. When I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to make change And I knew I would have to learn how to do public speaking, but I was so terrified in seventh grade when I did my first speech about Judy Garland, who was my favorite movie star at the time, I fainted. (laughs) My mother mother was like, well, honey, why don't you join the debate club? Which I was like, kill me first. But um, I did. And I was miserable. And I was a terrible public speaker, I would say through my 30s. I would have a five-minute speech, and sometimes I'd stay up the whole night before practicing it because it was so frightening to me. But you know what? You do it, you do it, and then you start to realize that it's not so bad. You survived it. It gets better. And then you don't even know when. One day you're standing on a stage and you're almost, not fully, but almost enjoying it. And so I would say just start. Let the work teach you. And practice courage because there will be a moment when you need that courage. And so you better be ready for it. Jacqueline, one question that we often ask our interview guests, it can be a little bit difficult, but if you take yourself back to when you were 30 years old, what advice would you give yourself? Well, in a way, I would give the same advice I just gave to the change maker. 
you're better than you think you are, just start. If you don't know where to start, I mean, I was lucky. I knew my purpose, but a lot of young people don't. And so they come to me and say, how do I find my purpose? And I would say, stop talking about purpose. Look around yourself. Is there a problem that needs solving? The answer better be yes right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And think about when you were little and your childhood dreams even. What resonates? Where will you feel most beautiful and alive? Go for it. Take a step metaphorically or physically toward it. If you say to me right now, but I just lost my job and what are you talking about? There's still things that you can do to make you feel alive. Practice courage. Learn from every failure. Know that you will fail. And what separates those who fail and those who succeed are the ones who don't get up and try again. And that you don't have to be the smartest. In fact, the ones who lead, whether they're smart or not, make other people around them feel like they're the smartest and have joy, find joy along the way because you're going to need it. Because if you really want to make change, this is not a one or three or five year If you pick a problem that is so big you won't solve it in your lifetime, I can guarantee you will have a life where you are never bored, where if you allow yourself, you can find incredible joy. And if you dare to persevere and have the grit and the resilience to keep on keeping on, you're the one that will get it done. You're seriously a great role model for what you say. So I, I'm nothing if not gritty. <laughs> One of my favorite stories was this, you know, after my first book, this kid from the slums of Nairobi wrote me who had been given the book as a gift. And he said, Miss Novogratz, I loved your book because I'm just like you. Like you, I failed many times. I'm HIV positive. I've only gone through third grade. I don't have a job. But if you have failed as many times, if you have failed in your life and still succeeded, then it makes me feel that I too can contribute to bridging the gap between the rich and poor. And I just loved it. I was like, I've never really thought of myself as that much of a failure. But I guess when you think about it, I have failed so many times, but I just get back up. And that's what we all have to model right now because we do not have the answers. We just got to start. A quick question, you know, for the listeners who might be going, oh, yeah, this book might be for leaders. It's it's not for me. But can you talk about that? Because I think one of your powerful points is this is what we all need to be doing right now. And now actually is the perfect time. Thank you for asking that. It means a lot because, yeah, sometimes I get all excited about the – because I my work is to invest in entrepreneurial leaders. But what I have – discovered, like Kevin, who is this young man in the slums with no job, HIV positive, third grade, I said to him at the end of that text, hey, Kevin, I'll make a deal with you. Your your book review is the best one I've had yet. (laughs) So I will send you as many books as you need for your friends, as long as you would organize them to have a book club for me the next time I'm in Nairobi. And he wrote back and said, hey, Jay, thanks. I'll take 100. So I sent him 100 books. And he and four other young guys from the Kibera Slum pulled off the most awesome blue sweater book club, which then turned into TEDx events. So they did these mini TEDxes in the Kibera Slums. 
And they had this release of human flourishing. And so many would look at Kevin and, and not even see him. And yet he saw it within himself that there was something he could do right where he was with what he had and not be afraid. And when I look at many of our companies, the people who impress me the most are the young person who has a job maybe selling solar lights, maybe not making very much money at all. But they see themselves as one young woman said to me, you know, they call me an agent, but really I'm an angel because I am helping to light my country. The work we do gets to be defined by us. We get to tell the story and that whatever we do, the way we can contribute depends on who and how we want to be, how we act in small and big ways every day impacts people we might never know or never meet in our neighborhoods and sometimes all around the world. And that is an awe-inspiring practice to remember every day. What an inspirational way to finish. Jacqueline, it's been such a joy to speak with you today. It's been very inspiring and thought-provoking. Now, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, about Acumen, about your new book, where would they go? And your other books. And your other books, yes. We <laughs> didn't even talk about the other We'll books. put all of these on the show notes. Thank you. Well, the easiest is to go to our website, acumen.org slash moral revolution. In addition to, you know, building all these companies around the world and we're in, we're investing in 13 countries now, we've also launched leadership programs, fellowship programs all around the world. And we've taken many of the lessons from those programs and we've put them online into what has evolved into Acumen Academy. And we're actually launching Acumen Academy as the world's school for social change. And we have a master course that is paralleling the book that also launches on May 5th. And it's free for anybody who buys the book in any form just by going to the website. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely put all of those links on to the show note page for the episode. So it just brings me to say thank you so much. And we wish you every success with this very important book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. And it's such an inspiring and timely book. And thank you for giving up your time to speak to us today. It was wonderful. You two are wonderful. And I just feel so honored to be on your show and the way that you ask questions and the way that you're so focused on lifting voices of women's leaders means a lot to all of us right now. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jacqueline. Jacqueline has to be one of the most purposeful and thoughtful people on the planet, don't you think? Yeah, she's an incredible role model, especially with her ability to be so open, you know, and to share her failures with such humor. It's just so refreshing. Yeah, I know. And how about the timing of her book? It's as if Manifesto for a Moral Revolution was written for these times, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. It's an empowering call to action for all of us. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next mini Future Proof episode next week and our usual longer show the week after that. Indeed. Stay safe and take care. Ciao for now.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.